Here's Paul Nolte, Senior Wealth Advisor and Market Strategist at Murphy & Sylvest. Hey, Paul, welcome back. How have you been? Oh, nice to be with you. Uh, enjoying a little sunshine, although not warm, but sunshine. I'll take it. Yeah, and not freezing cold. Not freezing cold is the new warm to me. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. Um, uh, so you told producer Pete it's a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose market right now. What does that mean? It's, you know, it's regarding the, the equities in the market. The equities are looking at bonds. Bonds have, have been rising uh, for a fair amount of this year. Uh, the Fed has been raising rates. Stocks have rallied. Now stocks are rallying in the expectation the Fed's going to be cutting rates next year. And right now the expectation is four times. So it doesn't matter necessarily what the bond market is saying or doing. Stocks are rising. So it used to be don't fight the Fed. Well, they're fighting the Fed. The Fed has been telling you we're going to keep uh, rates up. We're going to raise rates. We're going to keep them high, um, maybe higher for longer, and stocks continue to rise. So it's a, it's a different equity market than what we are used to in this type of financial environment. Did you say that it's expected that the Fed will cut rates four time four times next year? Cut rates four times? Four times. Well, if you believe the Chicago Mercantile Exchange that tracks it, um, yes, you would take a look at, at December of next year, and the Fed funds rate instead of being five and a quarter would be about four and a quarter. Yeah, how about that? What do you think of that? Um, you know, again, the Fed is not going to be cutting rates because the economy is doing well. So. You have to be careful what you wish for. So the expectation is that it's going to be a soft landing. The Fed is going to be able to land the 747 on an aircraft carrier. And uh, we're not sure that that's going to be the case. There's a lot of moving parts to this economy. The good news is inflation should be coming down, should continue to come down. We're seeing it in commodity prices in general. Wages are still doing well. They're up 4 to 5%. So wage growth is above inflation, good for the worker. Um, but retail sales, spending, um, services, still doing very, very well. We saw it in the unemployment report on Friday, still very strong there. So you have to look at what the – ask the Fed maybe, what are they looking at and what are they looking for? Is it strictly inflation or is it going to be overall economic growth? Inflation, the market's performance, the jobs numbers, the interest rates, which one is most important? Yes. Um, I, I will tell you that <laughs> I will tell you that I think really it's going to be inflation. And the reason for it is if you have consistent inflation at say a two percent level, even if the Fed decides to change to three. But if we're able to have consistent inflation around that level, mm -hmm. and we've seen it since 2008, you can then plan. Interest rates would also be relatively stable. That means I can plan out three, four, five years. I yeah. can build plant and equipment, et cetera. It's when you see that volatility and inflation going all over the place and monetary policy chasing that around that you really have a difficult time trying to, to forecast for the markets but also forecast for your business. Well, I know these things are tied together, but if you're maybe trying to capitalize, you are going to borrow, and interest rates are so very important then, right? Absolutely, but that's a function of where inflation is. So remember well, that inflation was very low 
before the pandemic, and we could afford to have interest rates very low with that low inflation. What about the fact that wages are outperforming inflation right now? And they have been for a while. Uh, you know, it, it, we had a period after the financial crisis where they were not. Uh, but leading up to the pandemic, through the pandemic, and through today, wages have generally been above that rate of inflation. So it's been a good thing for the general worker. Again, it, when you look at wages, it's very, very general. But in general, workers are, are ahead of the rate of inflation. Now, you can also argue inflation, you know, what's inflation? Inflation for a young couple is very different than an older couple because of the stuff that they're buying. So, again, that's not uniform. Yeah, it hits everybody in different ways. Uh, I, I take that point. Are you surprised by the employment numbers? Not really, because we take a look at the weekly jobless claims. And when you look at the, this period, this week versus prior week's prior year or versus prior years, same week, we're running at about where we were in 2018, 2019, prior to the pandemic. And the economy was doing very well at that point. So we're not seeing that tick up. And so that's what we're going to be watching for is the weekly jobless claims compared to that 2018, 2019 period to see um, when we wind up with a softer employment uh, situation. What do you think about the stock market and what's going to be driving it after the first of the year? Uh, you know, I talk to me maybe Wednesday afternoon after the Fed gets done speaking. Um, I think it's going to be the Fed and it's going to be interest rates. As much as interest rates have not really been the key driver for the equity markets, I think they will be going forward if the Fed is adamant about keeping rates higher. Earnings growth has slowed down some. Um, and we are seeing some weakness in different parts of the economy. A recession is somewhere out there, whether that happens next year, 2026, who knows. But I think when we take a look at it, I think interest rates is, uh, will be the, the key driver for the markets. Well, what's, so if the Fed is right and we cut rates four times, the equity markets might do actually fairly well. Well, what's the big question that the Fed is going to answer for you on Wednesday? What they're going to do, I, I'm hoping, is provide some guidance as to whether the expectations in the market for four rating, four rate cuts next year is on the mark or way off of the mark. And right now, the expectation is for those four. Right. It's going to be a change in that expectation that could move markets both significantly higher or lower. So less, less what they're going to do on Wednesday than what they're going to say on Wednesday, huh? Correct. And that's why the press conference is always fun to listen to, because you can watch the markets gyrate as questions get answered by Chair Powell. And that's one of the reasons why it's usually popcorn and an adult beverage during the press conference. We don't do any trading then. Do you think then if they cut rates four times that we would see a significant drop in mortgage rates? We should, um, because, again, mortgage rates are tied off of the 10-year bond. So as the 10-year bond has come down, we've seen mortgage rates come down here a little bit. And so those two move in lockstep. The Fed controls the short-term interest rate, so they will be working on one year and shorter. But as those come down, we would expect other rates to come down as well. We still have that inverted yield curve, right? We do, and we've had that for a long time. We don't and even talk about that continues. anymore. 
<laughs> because it's been such a part of the, the dynamic now for about a year and a half. Um, and again, high yield bond spreads. So the, the lower credit spreads have actually contracted. They've gotten closer in yield to treasuries, which is an indication that the market is very comfortable where it is right now. And part of the reason why we've had the rally that we've had since Halloween well, I would just like to see for everybody's uh, uh, retirement hopes or the people that are banking right now have retired. I'd like to see the markets perform as strong as they can next year. And I'm wondering what are the metrics I should be looking at today to give us all some hope about our retirement portfolios? Yeah, it's going to be the direction of interest rates and then the valuation of the parts of the market that you're interested in. Huh, uh, yeah. If you if you, if you compare, the S and P is the most expensive. If you move down a little bit to mid cap, small cap, maybe even international, those are very inexpensive right now and and probably provide a good long term uh, opportunity. You like that area then? If um, somebody was going to move their assets around a little bit? You know, those little pie charts, maybe I'll click on yep. something different. What should we be clicking on for 24? I think probably a little bit more value, a little less tech, um, and a little bit smaller would be would be the, the, the way I would move around the, that pie chart. Well, those smaller equities, those smaller companies are due anyway, right? I mean, a lot of them have been underperforming, and it's just been a handful that have been carrying the various indices, right? No, that's true. So, you know, the top seven companies have really carried the S&P 500. The average stock is up about five, six percent or so this year, which is okay. Small stocks have really suffered. Small stocks have also tend to have a lot more financials. So the higher interest rate environment has hurt them specifically. Uh, But I think that's really going to be a good area to be hunting around in in the next couple of years. Any last bits of wisdom? What else are you thinking about or looking at today, Paul? Um, really, those are the, the key ones that we're focused on at this point is trying to figure out the when um, the equity markets take a break and when maybe a recession shows up. We've had the yield curve inverted. We've had very easy monetary policy. We've had very easy fiscal policy. As that money gets drained from the economy, the, from the economy, when and how does the economy react to that? And that's going to be, I think, a, an important uh, thing to be looking at over the next year to two years and has implications for the financial markets. And those four rate drops, if they happen, would be quarter point each, right? Probably, yes. Right now, that's a quarter point each starting in March. Paul Nolte is a senior wealth advisor and market strategist at Mil- Murphy and Sylvest. Murphy Sylvest. I don't think I'm saying that right. MurphySylvest.com. Paul, thanks for your thoughts and help today. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Here's Jim Dalkey, national editor at AmericanInno.com or AmericanInno and ChicagoInno.com. Hey, Jim, welcome back. How have you been? Hey, John, doing great. Thanks for having me. Okay. Meat making biotech startup Clever Carnivore is on your page today. What's the story here? Yeah, this is a startup in Chicago, Clever Carnivore. They raised $7 million in new funding last week. Nice little chunk of change as this company uh, looks to bring its meat product to market. Uh, This is a business that creates meat in a lab. This is not a meat alternative or a sort of plant-based meat. This is actually a 100% 100 meat product. Uh, They create it 
um, you know, really using the stem cell uh, process that ends up being sort of similar to uh, creating beer in a brewery. They're essentially starting with um, a cell of a, of a real animal and creating a uh, meat product there in the lab. And so uh, they're working on uh, different pork, beef, and chicken products. Their first prototype, which they're expecting to unveil soon, uh, early next year, is a, a bratwurst product. So it's going to be a cultivated <laughs> pork, pork sausage. Yeah. I'll tell you what. If... If God allowed us to have, oh, no, wait, it would still be as um, unhealthy as a real, because it's meat-based, it's lab-grown, but it would still be a meat-based brat, right? So it would still have everything good and everything bad that a brat has. Is that right, Jim? Yeah, yes, and they, but they also, they, I mean, the clever carnivores is, you know, uh, saying that there is, is healthier than traditional uh, farm-grown products because it has no nitrates or highly processed substitutes. So less processing, um, you know, if, from their point of view, creates a, a healthier product. Are they going to be making that stuff in Chicago? That's right. So, yes, they opened a 4,200-square-foot facility on North Halstead uh, in 2022. And so, yes, this is making this uh, here in Chicago. So, uh, you know, definitely an interesting kind of, you know, biotech-slash-food business here that's growing locally. Um, and, you know, catching on a trend, you know, that we've, we've talked about in, in recent weeks, too, where it's kind of yet to be seen where this space is going. But clear, clearly, Clever Carnivore thinks there's, there's a momentum here. And with $7 million more million in the bank, um, they're ready to grow their first product and get it off the ground. In fact, you guys described it as oversubscribed. What does that mean? Yeah, that's a, a term where a startup goes out to raise a certain amount of funding, and there's more investor interest um, than they even had expected. So uh, it's not certain exactly how much they went to raise, but let's say they went out to go raise maybe $5 million bucks and so many investors wanted to get a, a part of the round that they're actually able to raise more money than they had anticipated. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, I really am interested. I'm hopeful that that category takes off, that it finds an audience, that it's legitimately um, good food and better for the planet. I think that's a selling point for these businesses. We've been hearing about them for the last few years, but I just don't know. I just don't know what the food will taste like and if the market's going to be there. And if it's even as good for all of those things as I said it would be. That's true. I mean, that's really the selling point is it's, it's you know, better for you, better for the environment. Uh, you know, that's really the goal here. I think, you know, like we've said at the end of the day, um, taste is a huge factor here. So if they can really nail the flavor of the bratwurst, I think it's going to go a long way. But, hey, you know, you put enough ketchup and mustard and onions and, you know, maybe you can kind of gussy it up and, and, and get the, the flavor profile pretty close. Yeah, make it a taco with some sausage or something. I'm anxious to try this stuff. I want to go to the laboratory and, 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 and look at these giant glass vats that I'm imagining gurgling slightly with a brownish clear liquid in there and inside or racks of meat, kind of like a gyro where they will just slice it off some sort of spindle. Something like that, right? You know, and I think you can expect that. I think that one thing that these, these all these companies are going to do is get, you know, taste tests in front of an audience, right? So they, they want, uh, you know, you, you, folks to try this for the first time, get an understanding of, you know, how close it mimics, you know, your traditional meat product. And, and really that's the way it's going to, you know, gain adoption. It's just more people getting their hands on this thing. So, yes, you can definitely expect these guys to spin up taste uh, taste tests and all kinds of goodies once it's up and running. I'm going to call them. I mean, restaurants are always sending food over here, but <laughs> we haven't had any clever carnivore 
lab-grown meat, so we'll check into that. Um, You've described it, though, as a tumultuous year for tech startups. Is that just Chicago, or is that everywhere? Yeah, that's everywhere. So, you know, from from one story of a startup raising to, you know, another story of Startup shutting down. You know, we uh, I put together a report recently looking at some data from a company called Carta, which is a cap table management platform for startups. They said they uh, work with about you know half of all venture backed startups in the U.S. They saw more shutdowns last quarter on their platform than uh, any quarter since they launched their service back in 2012. So 212 startups shut down on the Carta platform last quarter. That's up 25 percent from the quarter before and 50% from the same quarter last year. Um, The head of insights over there told me that uh, he does not expect this trend to slow down in the first half of 2024. We can expect to see continued reports of of startups closing up shop. Um, Not just shutdowns, we've seen uh, quite a bit of layoffs as well. So um, uh, there's been over 250,000 tech employees laid off Mm. so far, according to a group called Layoffs FYI. That's up 55% from last year. So shutdowns and layoffs definitely have marked a difficult year for many uh, in, the, in the startup and tech world this year. Can you contrast tech startups with traditional companies? I mean, all companies are susceptible to fail, and what's five years is the window for a lot of them. I, I guess the point is, are these, is this category any better, different, or worse than other new startups? Well, there's one area of startups that are particularly affected, and these are the later stage pre-IPO businesses that raised considerable amounts of funding when the environment was great in you know late 2020, early 2021. Um, you know, maybe you raised 100 million, 200 million dollars, um, and now you either have to uh, you know get acquired, go public, or raise additional funding. And you know, two of those are, have been very difficult to come by. The IPO window has been basically closed. Um, you know, for, for, you know, the greater part of a couple of years now. Um, so it, it, companies have not really been able to go public um, and investors are not spending their dollars in that stage of the startup world. So uh, companies that are at that later, later stage, investors are in, uh, instead opting to invest at the earlier stages because of this closed IPO window. And so it's been very difficult for those businesses specifically. And we've seen a few of those instances um, of startups that have hit that quote unquote unicorn territory where maybe you're, you're valued at a billion dollars or more. And now um, you, you maybe have raised funding 18 months ago and now you're closing up shop. That's amazing. Well, I wonder how much on average has been invested in tech startups that in fact don't succeed. Close up shop, like you said. Um, you would think, you know, if you were successful enough that you got somebody to bet $10 million on you, that you'd have a going concern. I wonder what the fail point is for some of these companies. How much money in and nothing out? Yeah, and, and you know, and we've seen, you know, very, very heavily funded businesses, um, you know, close their doors in 2023. It's just been kind of a, a big overarching headline of the year and that lots of venture capital money has burned and gone down. And, and, and as, you know, these businesses are, are not being, acquired or spun into something new. And so that's part of the game in, in the venture capital space, right? You're making these bets, you're placing your bets, and you you know that a certain amount of your funding uh, is never going to come back to you, but you're hoping that the bets that do hit you know, bring back that capital and more. I wonder if that should shade some of our views about venture capitalists. You know, we see these fat cats spending a lot of money and too bad for them if it doesn't work out. You know, I can just see um, 
the Main Streeters looking at some of those Wall Streeters or angel investors as people that get all the breaks and they got all of the money. But they also lose a lot of money is what you're telling me. That's right. And it's also been a very difficult um, for kind of these first time emerging venture capitalists. So a lot of a lot of a big trend over the last few years has been, you know, successful folks in tech deciding that they want to start their own venture capital practice. Maybe they've, uh, you know, gone on a, on a, a, a launched something solo or with a very, very small team. Um, and what's happened is, is that the market has turned um, and it's been difficult for those early new venture capitalists to uh, create a return for their limited partners and continue to you know, invest into new startups. And so well, time will tell what it means for, for that group specifically. But yeah, I, I think that the view of, you know, the quote unquote, you know, fat cat venture capitalists. Yeah, um, yeah there's uh, definitely examples of those, but that doesn't exactly fit everybody. Jim Dalkey, national editor, American Inno. Always interesting, Jim. Thanks for your help today. Thanks, John. More business news now. Here is Dave Schwann. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Feeling good about things economically? A new survey by the University of Michigan showed a rise in consumer sentiment. An early reading for the month showed a 13% increase after four months of declines. They noticed the improvement across all ages and income groups. Sentiment was 40% above its all-time low in June of last year. Here's something to feel good about. Gas Buddy says average gas prices in Chicago dropped over 10.5 cents in the last week. Prices in Chicago are nearly 30 cents a gallon lower than a month ago. Dollar General stores are reversing track on self-checkout counters. Last week, the company's CEO said they were relying too much on self-checkouts. Now they'll reassign workers to checkout counters in an effort to improve human interaction and to try and shorten lines. That's your Wintrust Business Minute. I I'm Dave Schwan. Here's the business of food then with Steve Alexander. Yeah, thank you. Happy Monday. Let's go to the phone. My name is Susan Stroud, and I am a commodity market analyst that focuses more on corn, soybeans, and wheat. And you write a newsletter about those commodities? Yes, you can find it at noblag.com. And here's some no bull for you. There's never been a better time to put a Chevy Silverado in your toolbox. And we are sponsored today by the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDrivesChicago.com. Okay, no bull. Illinois farmers depend on the Panama Canal to get their soybeans, corn, wheat, and sorghum and other products exported. But there's a problem this year. Rainy season in Panama has just ended. It runs from about May through the summer and fall. And then October and November are the two wettest months of the year for them. Except this year, the rainy season wasn't. And the Panama Canal depends on those downpours to replenish Gatun, the 20-mile-long lake between the locks on the Atlantic and Pacific sides of the the canal. So when a vessel enters the locks, you go through the locking system to raise it 85 feet above sea level to the level of the lake. And then the vessel transits the lake and then it will go back down on the other side. And that takes a lot of water. You're using about 50 million gallons of fresh water with each transit and only some of that can be reclaimed. And the lake also provides more than 50 percent of the drinking water needs for the country of Panama. So Panamanian officials are cutting the number of passages allowed each day, meaning ships loaded with Illinois soybeans headed for China, for example, are lined up with ships carrying all sorts of other things, mainly petroleum products. Dozens and dozens of ships are lined up. There are some vessels that are as much as 10 or 11 days that they've been waiting. Susan, who spent five days at the canal recently, says container ships always go to the front of the line, and the others either wait 
Or you can buy your place at auction to skip the line. And skipping the line can be expensive. Susan Stroud of NoBullAg.com will be back tomorrow to tell us how much some of these ships are willing to pay to skip the line and whether it makes sense to go around South America or through the Suez Canal. It's 10 to 14 days longer. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Okay, Tim Sanders is the founder and CEO of something called Silent Donor. This is a good time of year to talk to Tim because a lot of us are trying to make donations, and yet that can be annoying sometimes. Tim, welcome to WGN. How are you? Thanks so much, John. I'm uh, delighted to be here and a big fan of the show. Oh, I appreciate that. Are you in Chicago? I am, yep. I'm in Chicago. Uh, Our international headquarters is based here in the city. Uh, we also have a, a presence in Europe as well, but our international HQ is right here in Chicago. How about that? How long has silent donor been in existence what what are you guys sure so we launched in 2020 actually right before covid and silent donor is an online platform that allows for people and companies to send fully anonymous tax deductible donations to any charity or nonprofit organization that they want to support Uh, and we also partner directly with charities and nonprofits to allow for them to easily accept anonymous donations from any of their supporters who might be interested in giving privately so as we like to say Silent Donor allows for you to keep the impact of your donation and also keep your privacy, you know, avoid things like solicitations, emails, and uh, mail being sent to your home. And we're the largest anonymous donation platform in the world. I didn't know there was a need for that. I give to you, you give to them. Now we've insulated me from them. Is that a problem? People, when they make a donation, you can sometimes request that it be made anonymously, but I guess the charity knows who you are, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And we've heard a ton of different reasons uh, why people want to be anonymous when they give back. Ultimately, it just comes down to the personal preferences of a donor. A really popular one, though, that we do hear is that people just want to avoid these solicitation efforts. Because you're right, if you check that little box when you give an online gift, for example, that says you'd like for the donation to be made anonymously, you're still going to get emails and you know uh, communications from that charity. And some people don't want that. Other people tell us, you know, that Giving back is its own reward, and they don't seek recognition for it. Some people fear that they might face backlash from the public if they donate to a cause that other people might disagree with. Um, And another popular one is people cite their religious beliefs, and we're happy to help donors provide anonymous gifts to their churches or places of worship. Um, And then finally, sometimes wealthier donors, if they give a public gift, they kind of get deluged with solicitations from other organizations, um, and they just might want to avoid that. So essentially, John, what we're doing is, We've just created an easier and actually effective way to allow for donors to do what they're already trying to do when they check that box, uh, which is to remain anonymous as they give back. Do you capture a percent of the donation? Yeah, so we we take 5% of donations that go through our platform. Um, But it's important to note that, so if you send $100 through us, for example, we send $95 to the charity that you chose. But we also like to note that this fee is not just a fee for the sake of having a fee, but we like to say that when you give through Silent Donor, you're not only contributing to a charitable cause that you choose, but you're also helping us to power this robust philanthropic infrastructure that supports anonymous donations from donors all around the world. So essentially, you're doubling your impact every time you give through Silent Donor. Um, And for much larger gifts, we're happy to lower our percentage as well. Yeah. And so who are examples of businesses or countries or entities that you work with? Yeah, we're, uh, we're happy to partner with a lot of organizations. 
throughout the world and throughout Chicago as well. Some of the more notable ones might be we partnered with a Game of Thrones actress for her international charity. Uh, we One of our largest partners is the country of Ukraine. So for anyone that wants to give anonymous humanitarian aid and assistance to Ukraine, they could do so through Silent Donor. And I was actually invited to Ukraine earlier this summer. I attended a private summit in Ukraine um, for humanitarian aid and philanthropy. The president was there and other dignitaries, so that was pretty surreal. Mm. But throughout Chicago, we have some of the Chicago Catholic League high schools, uh, Loyola is a partner, St. Benedict's Parish on the north side, Code Platoon here in Chicago is a local veteran-focused nonprofit, you know, the Zach Plants Foundation and the South Suburbs, and a lot more. So we just allow for nonprofits to appeal to and engage with a wider range of donors, you know, including those who prefer to give anonymously. And also we're happy to partner with 501c3 organizations completely for free. So I click on silentdonor.com. I'll tell you who I want the money to go to, and then you'll give that amount to them minus the commission, right? Yeah, yeah. So how it works is we just try to keep it as, make it as easy as possible for donors. We have people that visit our site in their 20s and over 75. So we really keep ease of use in mind. But yeah, you just go to our website, silentdonor.com. You fill out our short donation form. You don't have to create an account or anything. You simply write in the name of the organization to which you'd like to donate. And then our team will perform the diligence to ensure that, you know, it's a real registered charity. Um, and then uh, what happens is from a process standpoint, we created our own simplified version of what's called the donor advised fund. Um, so if John, if you want to support, say the Ronald McDonald house through silent donor, your donation will first flow to our fund. Uh, and then you'll get an automatic tax deductible receipt from our fund. And then we send your donation at the end of the month to Ronald McDonald as a donation from our fund with no mention of John or any of your personal information. So it just looks like, you know, our fund sent Ronald McDonald a donation. Mm. But that really does capture the spirit of donating to somebody when you do it that anonymously. Tim Sanders is the founder and CEO, Silent Donor, it's called, and the website is silentdonor.com. Really interesting, Tim. Thank you for your help on that. We'll be in touch. Sounds great. Thank you so much, John.